welcome. Highfalutin Ski Bum Podcast, episode number 215. It is your pals, Mario and Brian. Mario, what is up? We got a very special podcast today. Got some good interviews. If you are a subscriber, you probably got a, a nice email with some more details on what's going on later. So you may want to think about subscribing. SkiBumPodcast.com slash, I think, subscribe. Yeah. You know what? Just go to SkiBumPodcast.com. You'll see our lovely, stunning picture there. And there's a, a box where you can subscribe. Yeah, very good. And we had a great time this week. So it's been... um I got to say I'm in a better mood. I think the uh, future of skiing is looking better. Like it wanes every day. We hear all this crap in COVID and what's going on in the ski industry and the weather and the planet. I'm getting in a better frame of mind a little bit, maybe just because we're talking to people. We had a fantastic interview that was probably our, our highest profile people that we interviewed this past week. Yeah, And it was one of those things that, you know, really just fell into our lap and i know i made sure i did some research i know mario you did some research like we really wanted to make sure that the folks we interviewed felt like their time was being well spent and that we weren't just some hack operation wasting their time and i think we did a really good job i think they were really engaged they had a great conversation with themselves and with us and I think it turned out really well. So yeah, we had a we had a fun time talking to you and and me personally. I think we both have a lot of respect and admiration for all three of the guys that we interviewed. Looking at the body of work of of some of the people, um, we've we've seen a lot of their stuff. And um, yeah, I don't I don't want to spoil it yet. I guess, but that's what's coming up. Yeah, no, these are these are three true professionals and they did a fantastic job. And we can't wait for you guys to hear it. So we are gonna keep our chit chat to relatively minimum amount. We've only got a couple stories we're gonna talk about, but we really do appreciate you listening. Thank you so much. All of our info is at skibumpodcast.com. There's the shop, skibumpodcast.com slash shop. Check us out on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at skibumpodcast. Untapped, our favorite social media platform. We have at Ski Bum Podcast and at Ski Bum Brian. That's Mario and myself. I just posted my app pray there. Where else are we? YouTube, SoundCloud. Go to your favorite podcasting apps. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Subscribe, rate us. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Mario, let's get this rolling. Where we always do. It's time for our pray today. I was just posting my untapped. You can see what I'm drinking. What I'm drinking this this week is a product called product from Dunedin Brewing Company. Dunedin Brewery, which is what I had last week. It's called Dram Alter. Comes in a cool little bottle. It's like a half champagne bottle. Has a like a champagne cork and the cage on it. And it is a white wine barrel aged sour ale brewed with spices. So. If that's not sour ale with spices, you say? Yes. Uh, so if that's not cryptic enough, you just have to taste it. It's not very bubbly. I thought it was going to be like super bubbly and the cork was going to explode, but it's uh, it's not like champagne. Um, like champagne. Like champagne. It tastes very buttery. It almost tastes like there's butter in it. That's how much buttery it is. Um, nice. A, li- 
and oaky. Like, so it has a little bit of the oak, but more of the butter of like a, like a white wine, like a Chardonnay. But this is like in beer and the beer is a little bit flat, but it tastes whiny and it tastes sour and it tastes very buttery, but it's interesting. Uh, I saw one, somebody put notes of cherry and I'm like, I don't get cherry out of this. I just get, I get sour, butter. And, oaky butter. <laughs> yeah. It's not even that sour, but it's just a lot of butter. I think this is actual. Oh, this is butter. This is just <laughs> just clarified butter with a little bit of. Uh, so I'm down to drinking shit. clarified butter. That's it. <laughs> that's that's as gangster as it can get, right there. That's it, man. So what is the ABV on this? I don't think the it's a it's like a painted bottle. Well, it looks like a painted bottle, but it's a, a label. They don't really have the. Oh, six point six ABV. All right. So it comes in a half liter bottle. It's a special, I guess they run, uh, looking online, they just run this like once a year and they change what they put in it. So I guess they always do the Dram Alter or they do this special release. I think it's Dram Alter and then they do uh, a different different type of beer every year. So this is this year's release. So I was able to get one. Nice. How about you, bro? So I'm going back to a beer. I think it's the first time I've had it on the podcast so far, but I have, I've had it on untapped before. I think the first weekend uh, after we, we spoke to Harrison and John, I got this beer. You, where'd you find it? So this is a local beer. This is a local brewery where I'm at uh, carton brewing. They're in Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey, right at nice. the beach. And this beer is called pronounced peart. So this is a lime-lighted Canadian lager. Nice. If you're not in on the name yet, it is a tribute and homage to Neil Peart, who was the drummer from Rush, who passed away earlier this year. And I guess they're big fans. They actually have some cool artwork where they have, you know, there's Getty Lee there, and I guess the guys from Carton. That's and very it's cool. Like Alex Lifeson, the guitarist from Rush, and then they have Neil over here with his massive, ridiculous drum set. <laughs> and uh, they had a nice little tribute to him on this can, which was really cool. I've talked about it several times this summer that I was looking for some beers that were lighter, more drinkable. And this one really hit the spot. It is a it's 5% alcohol, like I said, a lime-lighted Canadian lager. So it's a light lager, a little bit of lime flavor, really crisp, really tasty, drinkable. Like you could put down you know, four or five of these. Nice. Maybe you get just a little buzz on, but it's just, it, I'm actually enjoying this lager. And, you know, I know my first thought of lager is always like Budweiser and you're just kind of like, eh, Budweiser, whatever. Yeah. But this, get a little bit of lime flavor. Like to me, lime can make anything good. So it's like a Budweiser with lime? Bud lime is exactly what this tastes like. <laughs> it's like a Bud lime. <laughs> But I I love this beer. It's great on a hot day. It's great when you're sitting in the basement. It's just a nice beer. Now that's only great, right? Local, closest brewery to me. So do they carry that in like the supermarkets and Seven Elevens or whatever? Yeah, all around us they have them. Oh, that is cool. My only gripe with this beer, it was fucking expensive. Really? How much for a four pack? Of 12 ounce cans, and this is a lager. This isn't some fancy, ridiculous IPA or anything. It was like $24. Damn. So it was super expensive, which super limited release kind of thing. I mean, all their stuff is that way. They, they, you know, they have their four, five, six beers that are their 
uh, like staple their yeah. year uh, year round ones, and then they do a lot of weird funky stuff. Like I had, a, I think I had Willet Waffle a few months ago, which was a oh, I remember that one. That yeah. one was so good. I think I still have one more of those floating around. It was like an imperial cream ale or something. Like they do a bunch of really crazy stuff, but this one is just a delicious light summer beer. They have Very another cool. one called Boat, which is a session IPA or session, whatever you want to call it, session ale. It's like a four percenter. And that I think it was a Thrillist or one of those sites did a beer, like they picked one beer from every state, and that was the beer they picked for Jersey. It's called oh, Boat. Yeah. Boat that they make, which is a, a nice Boat. If you like something like a Founders All Day IPA, it's that same wheelhouse. We did say we're going to keep things to a minimum, so we have no stories in the app right today. We are putting the gondola back in quarantine. Let's go to ski news. Because important stuff is going down. Big stuff. Noah, they have announced their 2021 winter weather forecast prediction outlook. So what are they telling us? They are predicting above average snowfall this winter in Montana, Wyoming, and the Midwest. Northern Colorado could see an increased chance of precipitation starting in March for the rest of the West, including Colorado, Utah, California, Nevada, Idaho, and the Pacific Northwest. There is an equal chance for average snowfall. Areas that could come up short on snowfall this winter due to a La Nina pattern include Arizona and New Mexico. Oh, wow. So you look at the map here, and yeah, it looks like both coasts could be in a little bit of trouble. It looks like the, uh, the best conditions right now are kind of the, uh, the northeastern tip of Wyoming southeastern tip of montana and south dakota looks like it's the kind of the central spot for where the highest uh precipitation the long and the short of it is it could be a la nina that's sort of what they're they're leaning towards at this point and i know last time we had a la nina at least in the northeast it meant warmer conditions Mm. And I think that was the year that it got really dry in the South. So, you know, that that's kind of what we're looking at right now. They're staying, they're still not officially committing, but they're saying 50 to 55% chance of La Nina, which isn't, you know, that great of a chance. Hmm. Wow. The La Nina watch. Yeah, and then El Nino, 5 to 10, so pretty much not going to happen. More to come on that. You know, we're still in the kind of mid-dog days of summer, but it's always nice to think about where you're going to go and where you're going to make plans. And, you know, this could be one of the elements that will help you make that decision. So we'll have a link in the show notes. Even though we're in lockdown, you still got to make plans. I mean, that's why it's it seems a little bit... Uh more promisingly i believe in a silver bullet cure coming out right before election day call uh, me crazy quite crazy call i don't know me crazy. ski season to not ruin the season how about that like just so you know there's a new cure coming out it's coming out the day before election day Monday. you might want to elect me otherwise it's gonna go away i'm gonna go give it to the to jaina 
China is going to get the cure if we don't elect me president again. <laughs> Quite possible. Crazy. Hey, has look at 2020 so far. Is there anything that someone could say to you could happen that you're going to go, no way, it's not possible? Yeah, that's true. Seattle just revealed that their hockey team is called the Kraken. Release the Kraken. Anything is possible in this world. Yeah, At least in I 2020. Can imagine the dramatic effects they're going to put on that. Release the yeah. Kraken and the Kraken. But the crackheads, the fans. Crackheads. The so crackheads. I guess. All right. So next up in ski news, Bodie Miller. He's announcing a new winter sports academy. He's going to partner with Civic Leadership Academy. He's going to launch online learning designed for skiers, snowboarders, cross-country skiers, and other sports enthusiasts from grades 7 through 12, which is really cool. So everybody could enjoy that. And then he's also going to open a physical school down the road from Big Sky in Montana, where he resides in the winter. They're saying it's been in the works for about a year and a half. Uh, but now, you know, with the the whole online debacle with Corona pandemic, they've accelerated that. The plan is an online program as a stand-in for the interim while they work out all the, the details of setting up the physical school. Classes are intended to integrate personal interests into teaching methods, Balancing class load around their sport of interest would be up to them. And they're saying, Bodhi is is saying, quote, this is a total game changer because it allows students to operate on their own schedule, get a first class education and still develop into whoever it is they're meant to be. There's one thing that I loved in this article that they talked about. They said, so an example would be a skier or snowboarder that may study physics by learning the power generated out of a turn or the principles of edge angulation. I mean, isn't mm-hmm. that really what every kid wants is that the thing that they love to, to learn the ins and outs and everything about it and why it is what it is and how by understanding that you can get better. When I was growing up, my big thing was hockey and all I cared about was hockey. Like if, if I was in a class and they, and again, a physics class and they were like, Oh, well, you notice how when you move your skate around for a, uh, you know, crossover turn, the way you're moving, if you moved slightly differently at a different angle of articulation, you could produce more momentum and go faster. Like they, I've never heard of any school doing that. I'm sure some crazy academies must, but yeah. to actually apply different subjects in school to your area of expertise or your area of interest. I think that is so awesome. It is. It's pretty interesting that we have the ability to do that now. Like that, that was never even in the conversation when we were growing up. Yeah. Imagine you take like a, uh, like a home ec or an art class and you're like, Oh, I'm going to design a logo for my clothing company, my ski clothing company. I'm going to learn how to sew and make my own, you know, my own jacket or something, you know, like just things like that. I mean, Maybe you don't want to do it, but at least you have the opportunity to learn how it's done or, or have the opportunity to to maximize every element of your sport. I love that. And this ICL Academy, I guess, who he's partnering with, they're doing online private school grades 7 through 12 already. So uh, if they leverage what they've done, apply a little sport modification to it, I guess it could work. The There's, only rub. The only, yeah. So the I was only getting, rub. <laughs> So the cost for the program is, ex- well, so thus far about 100 students expressed interest and the cost for the program is expected to be, ready for it, around $13,000 with financial aid available. So does that, 
now is this your actual full-time school or is this just like a part-time add-on to what you already be doing well i think from what the way i read it it's a a self-paced online school that you could take on your own schedule so that you could fit in your training and your workouts. I think that's be the one big positive coming out of this whole COVID lockdown attempt at online learning situation is we're going to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And what does work, I think we're going to take and concentrate and maximize. And we're going to see more of this where people can really hyper-focus on something they're truly passionate about. And yeah. I think we're going to see some, some interesting positive results down the road. Well, it's interesting. The technology we're all using has always has been there for a long time. So it's not like we had to create the technology to do this, to get, you know, to, to over overcome, you know, or to give us the ability to work and communicate during COVID. Right. So that technology already existed. We just weren't using it because everybody's under this old paradigm of this is the way things have always been. You, you get up, get in a car, drive a, you know, however long it is to get there and then you commute back home and you have to be in the same place, even though you might not talk to the people you work with or know them, you got to sit next to them, you know? So it kind of breaks that paradigm, which is good because I think the younger generation isn't of that mindset. They're looking at the working world saying, why, why does it have to be this way? Yeah. Got some old crotchety people saying, because I said so, and, and you guys don't get any work done when I'm not here and it's all bullshit. So. Yeah. I love working from home. So <laughs> I, I do as well. Yeah, it is. It is difficult because I know people that I, I talk to at work who have little kids mm-hmm. and it's really tough for them having kids at home because they are just running around and while they're trying to work and it's like, well, what do you do? I mean, you know, kids are being kids and you're trying to work at home because, you know, there's nobody, you know, it's, it's weird to say, but it's almost like you rely on that that's almost sense of daycare that the kids are in school so you can go do your your job you know yeah well it makes you reevaluate a lot of things in your life because why do we have daycares why aren't parents raising their kids anymore why right. do we need two incomes to live in a certain place to do a job we hate yeah I mean, it's really making us question a lot of things yeah which i'm totally excited about because i've been questioning this nonsense for years and hmm. this is Totally validating all my beliefs, which has been kind of kind of nice, but also kind of depressing because I'm still a bit stuck in it. But yeah, after after, uh, you know, our our recent interview that we had, we were super inspired. So we might as well roll right into the main topic. We talked about a few weeks ago that there was a trailer out for the new Warren Miller documentary called Ski Bum. What we were very surprised to have happen was in our mentioning of it, one of the co-producers of it reached out to us on Twitter and asked if we wanted to set up an interview with the team that was most core in creating this documentary. And of course, we were super excited. So we said, hell yes, right away. And then scheduling was just like it was we don't, we never realize how much stuff we got going on. Right. So, yeah, well, you know, I also had the, the family issues going on. So there was yeah. a lot of stuff made it a little more complicated, but we finally were able to make it happen this past week. We spoke to Patrick Creedon, who was the director, who's also directed the films wordplay, Hesburg, IO USA, and the ESPN 30 for 30 episode Catholics versus convicts, which was awesome. I was looking up, uh, 
IOUSA today. And I saw that I found the 30 minute clip, but the full one, I don't know where, where to get it. I got it back on Netflix back in the day. I think that was back in the, the discs in your mailbox day. Uh, okay. Cause it got pulled off. Like it was, it was listed on one of them, one of the services. And then it said it's not available. So I was like, Oh, wow. It's funny looking at all the numbers we're talking about, like all like the national debt is now 1.4 trillion. I'm like, dude, they just, did they just print like $6 trillion? Like it was nothing last week. Yeah. So, yeah. Times have changed in 10 or 12 years since that one came. So Patrick was the director and then producer Jeff Conroy who was an essential member of the film team and spearhead of the project from day one. He also conducted the interview with Warren from the film. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff is the, is the producer for deadliest catch. I was watching that just before the podcast (laughs) watched about two hours of it. And last, but certainly not least Dan Egan, who, if you're a a ski movie fan, you are of course, remember Dan from several Warren Miller films Oh, gee, he's the crew, including the infamous Cornus break back in 1990. And we had just a wonderful conversation with all three of them. They're three fantastic people, the three of their their energies, because they come from different places and coming together to make this film that you can tell all of them were passionate about it for similar and different reasons. The film was great. I watched it last weekend. Mario, you watched it last week, too. Yeah. If you've ever, if you just like stories about interesting people, this documentary is great. If you're a skier, this documentary is great. Really unveiled a lot of stuff that I didn't know about Warren and his, his yeah. personal life. They did a good job, like incorporating his personal life, but not getting it too focused on that. It, it was well rounded of you know what they covered, and it kind of gave you a nice broad view of of him and his life and the impact he had on the industry. We had a great chat. They were fantastic. We really appreciate their time. Hope you guys enjoy it. Here it is. Patrick, Jeff, and Dan. We have an extremely special guest interview this week. Actually, a panel of uh, panel yeah. of folks we're interviewing. Uh-huh. This is the core crew. This is the crew that put together the Warren Miller Ski Bomb documentary. So we are truly honored to have Patrick Creedon. Dan Egan and Jeff Conroy. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Thanks for having, Thanks for having us, Brian. Great to be here. And the crowd goes the audience. Wild. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, gentlemen, would you like to give a quick little, uh, little, I guess, a little synopsis, a little uh, bio on yourselves so we get started? Uh, sure. My name is Patrick Creedon. I'm based in Los Angeles. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I work with my wife, Christine O'Malley, and... Um, the Warren Miller film was an absolute uh, wonderful project. We loved every single minute of it. It wasn't easy. Um, they never are. But mm-hmm. Warren's story is uh, not only a great story, but I feel like it's incredibly timely in 2020. It really seriously feels like um, it's like a reminder that the world is a beautiful place, I think, and that there's adventure to be found and we need that story right now. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. That's well said, Patrick. Thank you. <laughs> you know what you're doing. Um, I can jump in. I'm Jeff Conroy. Uh, I've, uh, you know, Patrick and I are personal friends and, uh, <laughs> and so we've known each other from the, the kids soccer fields, but, uh, we came together cause we both are, uh, you know, storytellers who deal with real people primarily. And uh, my background is mostly uh, in television, uh, Deadliest Catch, 
uh, Axemen, Ice Road Truckers, a lot of those uh, adventure type blue collar shows were the series that uh, that I helped be a, be a part of. So, um, I'm so curious as how you suck me into watching like four hours of Deadliest Catch every time. <laughs> There's insane. a marathon on. I'm like, uh, how long have I been watching this? I got stuff to do. Yeah. You cannot turn that show off. It's, well, I gotta, it's, it's like crack. It sucks me in. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, look. It's, Ice Road it's, Truckers too. That was the other one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, character stories, right? And that's yeah. uh, that's that was actually, for me, was the biggest connection too with Warren was like, he's such a person like who loved good characters and loved to be able to like, tell a great story of adventure and being there and being a part of all that. So like, that was where like, we were able to really kind of connect, you know, I think. I don't think he watched any of the shows, but uh, <laughs> he, he got it. He got it. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And uh, I was born a ski bum, I think, born into a family of skiers in the city of Boston. And as kids, we just skied right out our back door. We lived on a hill and uh, used to build jumps across the neighbor's driveway. And uh, never any complaints from them, right? No, because we invited them over, you know. I'll see. <laughs> Smart. But, uh, yeah. And, you know, when I first met Warren, um, you know, that was a monumental time for me because he, he sort of wrapped his arms around me and my career and mm -hmm. became a mentor for me. So the film, uh, it, it rightly titled Ski Bum, you know, I really related to. And, and when Patrick and Jeff started telling the story and getting me involved, I related to the whole thing. I relate to Warren in so many ways, his ups and downs. I feel like it's, it's my story too. And, um, and so, you know, he always just encouraged me to follow, follow my dreams and follow my passion. And, you know, it was, we were lockstep with each other for a long time. I, I just love to build on that for a second, Dan. I mean, it really was your story too, like totally. in a lot of ways. And, and I think that, you know, Dan was able to kind of, help us see the world and tell Warren's story from a very like personal POV that Warren could relate to. And I think like that was a huge value to the film, you know, to be able to hear that from someone who understood that was, was immensely valuable. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just add to what Jeff said is that, and Dan's too modest to say this, but Dan is an incredibly talented filmmaker in his own right and a ski bum. <laughs> and I feel like Dan Egan I've never told you this, but I mean, I feel like more than anyone, you are you are the living legacy of Warren Miller, in my opinion. There's lots of people who ski and there's lots of people who make ski movies. But Warren Miller, like you said, took he took you under his wing and and not just put you in front of the camera, but he explained what life behind the camera looks like. And and lo and behold, that's the journey you ended up you ended up traveling down and 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 i just love the fact that obviously that you're in the film but i love the fact that in a way you're it's almost like you're one of his children i know not that you're related to him but you're you're you you're, that we know he he, yeah. <laughs> he did what he did and you are doing what you did and and your life would be very very different had you not met him yeah, I mean, Warren and I were able to waste a lot of perfect days on snow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's really good to hear that because you hear about some of these great artists or geniuses that, you know, move and touch people and do something great in an industry. And, you know, 
without passing that on, it's a shame. So it's great to hear that, you know, I think he seems to be a a guy that, you know, he touched a lot of people um, in the industry and out of the industry. So it's, it's good to see. Yeah. Absolutely. And one thing that's that Mario and I talked about before we uh, we got on today is that, you know, a lot of companies are making ski movies, snowboard movies now. And a lot of the other companies, it seems like they're like, look how badass we are. We're, you know, we're amazing. While the Warren Miller stories, it's like the skiers and the boarders are like, we're really good. But you know what? We want to bring you on the journey with us. Like we want to invite you into this and help you fall in love with what we love doing. And that was something that always kind of resonated with us more than some of the other not saying the moves aren't great the other folks are making but there was so much more heart in the the warren miller stories which i think resonates with a lot more people than just the people going to you know huck off extreme splines mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah warren warren had a whole thing about like come come join us like exactly do what we're doing right and, and i think oftentimes there's a there's a sense of like with some of the other filmmakers that you refer to, it's like, we're doing this thing that none of you could ever possibly do with Warren. There was more of a sense of inclusion you could do what we're doing. Like, yeah, why aren't you doing what we're doing? Right? Why aren't you? Yeah, exactly. You don't have to jump off a cliff like Scott Smith. You can <laughs> come go on a road trip with your family and friends and you're going to have a great time. That I think is what really distinguished Warren. And that's why he's, I mean, he's he's the Pied Piper of skiing in North America and, and in much of the world. Um, it's amazing when you look at his career. We tried to do this in the film, but you see his career as a filmmaker started in 1950. And you see that the expansion of the ski business and the ski industry was running right alongside his career. And the two things kind of complemented each other and built off each other. It was like the, he was there at the perfect time to make yeah. it happen. I love the thing he mentioned too. There was only two, but two uh, ski lifts in California at the time when they at started the time, this. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. Awesome, it's crazy. But, you three, know, after a Warren Miller film, like you come out of it not just saying, "Oh, I want to do this cool trick" or whatever. You come out saying, "I want to go visit that place." Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. or I want to spend more time on the mountain because I don't spend enough. Like you start having those yeah. questions. Uh, that conversation with yourself. And that, that was very moving for me, you know, yeah. getting into just learning to ski at a late age, you know, and now I'll, I'll go every day if I can, which <laughs> is really tough right now, but that's going to, uh, that's going to wreck your life. Uh, Mario, I'd be very, this COVID thing's helping a little bit right now. You know, the one <laughs> thing that Warren, Warren did so well was he, he, his intention was not to make heroes out of the skier. His intention was to make the hero or the aspiration out of the mountain. Right. And that was a really subtle difference with all the other filmmakers. You know, (laughs) people were out to make crown heroes or kings or these guys or this and that. But Warren, it was a beautiful place with a great skier. And in some cases, the skiing didn't have to be great. Um, it was cultural and it was that inclusion that everybody related to. And, uh, I think that that's why you know, people really related to it so much and related to the skiers is because we were doing some fun things and some wild things, but it wasn't really about us. It was about where we were and his commentary. And sometimes they didn't even, they didn't even sync up. Right. (laughs) That was not relevant to the story. Uh, Neither was the truth really. Right. So that's magic about it. Yeah. So the three of you come from very different 
places here. How did this project all come together? Um, it actually, it, it started with uh, another producer on the film, Joe Barry. He was, had gotten to know uh, Warren at the Yellowstone Club and knew a lot of people in the circle and Scott Schmidt and those guys. And um, I knew Joe uh, through one of his cousins and uh, we just started to talk. And uh, it was about a passion for what Warren was doing and this world of bringing people into adventure. And then uh, Patrick and I started to talk and then, you know, we, we Patrick connected with Dan and then we kind of all the little pieces started to come together and go, okay, let's, let's, let's do this. And about what time frame was that? Mm, that's a good question. So we'll, let's see, we interviewed him in, what'd you say, Patrick may, of, may of 2017 up on Orcas Island. We were right. there a week. Yeah. Um, and so I think I went to I went to Yellowstone in February just to meet him and 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 give him a chance to meet me and ask me questions and stuff. It was a kind of a surreal moment because the Yellowstone Club, if if for those of you who don't know what it is, it's like it's like a ski resort in heaven. I mean, it's the most beautiful, luxurious, very exclusive private um, ski resort. Um, and I'm sitting at a bar talking to, of all people, Warren Miller and the golfer Tom Weisskopf. Because <laughs> <laughs> Tom, Tom Weisskopf is kind of the Warren Miller equivalent at the Yellowstone to their golfing, to their golf course. He's cool. the wow. okay. local pro and, and he lived there. And uh, it was just, you know, I, I always, I always, whenever we start a project, I'm excited to sort of meet the subjects, but at the same time, I want them to meet me. I, mm -hmm. I want them to kick kick the tires of of who we are, and and you have to, you know, you have to try to develop some trust with your subject. So yeah. that was February of seventeen, Jeff. I think you and I started talking uh, probably, um, um, probably like later probably end of two thousand sixteen or something. Yeah. I went and visited Warren on Orcas Island uh, on the first trip right. and uh, just spent like two days with him, I guess in the fall. Yeah. And just, like, again, like Patrick said, you know, a lot of people had wanted to make this film. So they, you know, Warren definitely wanted to like, kick the tires to get, like, so to speak of the people yeah. who were going to tell his story. So, so was it that you guys were kind of competing against other people for the? No, I don't think it was that. It was just it was more like uh, it was more like building a trust. I think Joe Joe Barry, who our producing partner, had already really kind of spent a lot of time figuring a lot of those other elements out. So now it was it was really like here are the other guys that are going to be sitting with you and talking to you okay. and you know, in charge of this. You know, it's kind of funny. One thing I'll mention about the first trip I had to Yellowstone in February of 2017 was one night up at the lodge there. Um, it was late. It was dark. I had my camera with me. I wasn't really shooting. It was more just, I just had it just in case or whatever. And this guy comes up to me. He's like, you got to meet my friend. I, I hear you're doing the Warren Miller documentary and you got to meet my buddy. He's great. He's a great interview. You're going to love him. And, I, and I'm like, well, I'm not really going to, I'm not really shooting tonight. I'm just kind of meeting people. No, 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 no. You got to meet him. Well, the person that I met was Dan Egan, this guy who I don't <laughs> even remember who it was. He right. walked me over to Dan Egan 
and in about in about the first 10 seconds i was like this is my long lost brother <laughs> this is this is a man who is just everything about dan was uh, was uh, and meeting him was it was just good luck for the project and dan in a way sort of i don't know kind of was i i got a sense that dan turned and said to his skiing colleagues in the skiing community you know these guys are these guys are okay I, they're they're i i kind of get a good sense and they're going to be fine and so dan is very much our good luck charm because we we once we met him we're like well this is the person who's gonna kind of almost be our ambassador to mm -hmm. the whole community warren you know warren was 92 he and Lori, his wife were we're kind of removed from our operations, so to speak. I mean, we didn't talk to them every day, but Dan was someone we could always like pick up the phone and be like, Hey, should we talk to this person? How about this story? What do you think about this thing that we can't figure out? And, and so we were very lucky to meet Dan early on. And that was a really good partnership. It was Warren's birthday. Um, oh, that's right. That's it was, right. Uh, Warren Miller day at Yellowstone club. And I went up to Warren that night and I go, Hey, Warren, how's it going? And he goes, Egan, would you sneak in? <laughs> and that, that's, so, that's so Warren, you know, he just never would miss a beat. You know, he was always, you were always in the movie when you were talking with Warren, you know, and, uh, and, you know, that, that imagine at 92, just whipping out that joke like that. And, yeah. uh, and the two of us relating to it, you know, so perfectly. And cause I knew what he meant, you know, cause yeah. he always felt like he snuck in too, you know, and, totally. and that's yeah. the story of Warren Miller, you know, he right. and why Yellowstone was such an appropriate place for him, because, you know, here's a guy who came from really nothing uh, and was celebrated at the highest levels uh, and, you know, at the fanciest ski resort in the world, uh, you know, and, and that that's that's so appropriate to me. And he always called the Giggle Mountain. When you ski here, Dan, you're going to giggle because there's nobody around. The grooming's perfect, even at 3 p.m. And, yeah, and you do. When you ski the Yellowstone Club, you giggle all the time. He yeah. wasn't uh, gutting rabbits the there. The lodge, the lodge at the at the Yellowstone Club is called the Warren Miller Lodge. And I guarantee you that years after after Warren living there and being the ambassador, you know, he's he's like he's a living legend. Even inside of the Warren Miller Lodge, I'm sure there were times when Warren thought to himself, how did I get in here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me in here, right? That's a, that's a very true perception. Right. Yeah. End up not not just hanging out at this amazing place, but also, you know, it it's it's named after him. It became they they built the whole resort kind of around Warren and his story, if you will. He yeah. wasn't gutting rabbits in the sink there though. That's he might have been. You know, you never know with Warren, but it would have hanging the rabbits in the in yeah. the bathroom, right? Just drying out. So now you mentioned Crazy. that. So that's when you first, I guess, met Warren and and kind of did you put the idea to him then, or did that take a little bit longer? That that had already happened. That was really more kind of okay. the uh, the vetting process. So so Joe Barry had really kind of like had, speed dating. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that had already kind of moved forward. So okay, cool. so from that point forward, how long was it until you actually sat down at Warren's home there and did that interview? Well, so that was February. Well, Jeff Jeff was at Orcas Island 
at the end of 16, I met him at, at I met him and Dan at Yellowstone in February of 2017. And we went to Orcas Island in May of that year. And then Warren yeah. passed away like eight months later. So yeah. it was kind of fast. I mean, I'm, we Truthfully, were really at him at that time because yeah. if we had waited much longer, I, I don't know that he would have been up up to telling his story that way. I, I mean, I think that was a, a, a set of anxiousness for us was that, you know, I mean, he was, you know, in the best shape of any 92 year old you ever saw, yeah. but like you, you, you can't help, but be a little bit anxious that someone of that age may not be able to give you the insight that you're looking for. So we, I, I feel like we, we definitely accelerated it faster than we might've otherwise. <laughs> You know, I gotta say in the movie yeah. though, it's, it seemed, you know, you guys said you did it over a few days and he looked fresh and peppy. And I was like, wow, he looks amazing for 93. I was like, he looks like in his seventies or eighties, you know? Yeah. No yeah. Well, like, like strategically, the idea was to just to, to give ourselves enough time with him so that we could get the most energy out of him, his best energy. Cause he had great yeah. energy, but you know, maybe not for three hours in a row, which would be a typical interview, but uh, you know, we, we were talking about this earlier. He did sit for nine hours of interview. Wow. And that's nine hours over three days. It's a long time still. Yeah. yeah. It's a long time. And so we really had to be kind of conscious of like, okay, I think we're getting, you know, he's not as peppy as he was. Warren in typical fashion would have like a cup of hot cocoa or like <laughs> maybe take a little break and then we'd start later again. But like, it was, it was really you know, you know, just that decision with um, Patrick and Christine to kind of give ourselves this wide berth for that interview and not try to force it in, just take our time with it was really was key. You know, and then, you know Jeff, one thing I remember about the interview is, as we mentioned earlier, you, you were the one who conducted Warren's interview. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I was nervous about was that Warren, Warren, didn't like to talk about things that were hard to talk about. Yeah. Kind of very old school. And there were things yeah. that Warren's like his personal life, family stuff and yeah. some of that. Yeah. There were things yeah. in his life that were very painful, um, frankly. And so there yeah. was there was I, my my fear was that he wouldn't kind of go there right. and talk about things that were hard to talk about. But I also think he knew he was 92 years old. Right. He saw that there was an, um, we had an amazing crew. Chris Patterson shot it. He had a great team. I think we had three or four cameras rolling. I mean, he looked around. First thing he oh, says yeah. when he walked into the room is like, wow, that's a great looking tripod. <laughs> and I think yeah. he kind of knew this is, I'm not going to get a chance to tell my story again. It's game I, I, I mean, they're going to do it here or these, or these, these stories are going to, are going to go with me when I'm gone. Yeah. And he, he and he kind of went there and you were yeah. able to get all of this stuff out about him, about his, his wife who died when she was in her early twenties, the first real love of his life. Some of the stuff with, with some of his personal life stuff was difficult. And frankly, mm -hmm. moving on from his company, when he decided to retire and sell his company to his son, Kurt, I think that was really hard. I mean, that yeah. was, it was hard for him to walk away, you know? So, and, and, and he just kind of opened up. He, he, yeah. he, he wanted 
people to know this is who I was or am. This is how I got here. And this is what I want you to remember about me. Right. He didn't want to, he definitely didn't want to complain about anything that went bad for him. It was kind of like, that's the way it was. So that's how it was. But I'll tell you a funny story is um, I was pushing him very hard on, um, on he, he, he was telling me the story of how like he essentially closed the door he had this conflict with his, he basically got ripped off by his mother and his sister. And he told me he never spoke to them again. And he's telling me the story of them locking him out or no, him locking them out and not letting them in. And I'm like, Warren, I don't understand. Like you got to spell this out for me. He's like, well, they knocked on the door and I just didn't answer. I'm like, but, but how does that happen? And I'm pushing it. And I'm you want to know, is it five hours? Was it 10 I'm minutes? Like, what was going like, on here? I'm like, how do you never speak to someone again? That is a very, very yeah. deep emotional move. And he was, and it was really funny because, um, you know, there were some people in the room here and there who could kind of hear. And at one point I was, it, it, I was stopped and, and it was kind of told like, you've pushed him enough. And it was, uh, it That's was a enough. great, yeah, but it was a great moment because Warren was like, no, I'm I'm good, and he came to life even more after that because he wow. loved to fight. Like this guy, he loved a little bit of like because yeah. he was a filmmaker and he loved the idea of like I'm going. They're going for the good stuff. I'm glad they are. You know what I mean? So yeah. it was a really fascinating moment where he he just you know he, you would have thought he was 20 years younger because after that moment he really wanted to you know he wanted to tell it. He wanted. You can't to, handle the truth. Yeah. He, he <laughs> A challenge he really liked. He liked the fight. He liked the challenge. You know, I got to say, I watched the first. That that fight is what made one guy shoot the movie, edit the movie, tour with the movie, you know, because to have that sort of focus and dedication, you can't get bogged down in the emotion of things that go good or bad. And that that's, I think, what Warren did so successfully was just put it, you know, he talks about having three alarm clocks, right? Yeah. And spreading them all around the house. He talks about how he built homes to fund, you know, things when he was living with his first, you know, and that sort of determination that like, look, I'm going there and nobody's going to stop me mm-hmm. and I'm going to do everything it takes along the way. And I think that's how he was able to detach from these highs and lows of his life because he just knew there was too much work to be done to right. be milling around in the past. Well, that was a great thing. His personal family story was, was amazing. Cause I was watching it with my fiance and she was just like this, you know, I asked her what she thought of it, like after about an hour and she was like, his story consumed her. She said, because it was just, you know, the determination and to go through that and to keep going, the perseverance. She's like, you don't see that in people, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's amazing story, just who he was as a person. And then what he did, you know, was, was on top of that, you know, it's like, wow, look at this amazing person that's able to like get over all this, you know, the, the tough family life and and the, the hardship, you know, losing his wife and, and all that, you know, at yeah. a very sudden young age and he came through it all, you know, it's just, yeah. That was one thing that was, I mean, you know, we're so used to watching these Warren Miller films and just seeing fun and seeing like happy stuff. And then 
you know, you kind of get into the story and you talk, you know, you hear about his first wife, Jean, and her dying of spinal cancer and him laying under her bed and editing film. And you're like, like you just, your heart breaks when you hear stuff like that. And that's the stuff that, you know, where the casual Warren Miller viewer is not used to that. So to kind of see all what, what brought that fuel, that passion, that fire to keep him to going to how, how many towns, hundred, hundred days a year, 180 days yeah. a year on the road. Yeah. You know, that that's not coming from a nice posh way of living that comes from a fuel, a fire, a, a trying to get somewhere, try to get to the next level with your, your, your vision, your art. And uh, that was the way you guys told that. And just seeing that was, was fantastic. And Jeff, you did an amazing job yeah. uh, pressing him to oh. kind of get the responses. I mean, and, and you mentioned too how he was because we mentioned when did this happen because timing was very important because of right. how close these interviews came to his passing. It's almost and like I think you guys alluded to it. It's almost like he needed to get this off his chest in a way. Yeah. You know, like he couldn't go until he told this story. And, mm. and, and for us, you know, it was it was a lot of pressure and a lot of um, you know we have a lot of reverence for his story and it felt like we had been entrusted with something like very valuable and special you know mm-hmm. and that was a lot of our conversation was how do we do this right you know how do we make sure that we tell his story right and represent him the best way and so i mean you know it's it it's to, for a living legend to tell a living legend story like that is was you know an honor for us i think really you know and a lot of responsibility you know. Yeah, because you knew there's not going to be another one after this in, in right. all likelihood, right? So, and there's it. a lot of people that had you know thoughts on on what stories should tell, but I, I think our you know we really pushed for the most universally the re- most real story and authentic story, and the and the one that most you didn't have to be a skier to relate to necessarily because we knew about the skiing, right? But it was is his journey which made him such a broader appeal you know well that kind of emulates his movie right his movies were about skiing but you didn't have to be a skier to appreciate it you know there's a lot of content in those movies to get somebody who's not a skier hooked in and say hey i want to learn more about this or i want to know more go there you know yeah you know i'm i'm curious we're going to turn the tables real quickly i have a question for mario and brian mm-hmm. sure you sure. have a, you, know, you have a podcast called ski bum what what did Warren Miller mean to you two? Well, I'll be honest. This this would never have happened without Warren Miller, you know, because yep. and I, I was talking to Dan about it before we hit the record button. You know, Mario and I both we didn't grow up skiing. Like I skied maybe a handful of times before I was in my thirties, and uh, Mario didn't start till he was eighteen. And 18 we got <laughs> we actually went on a trip together to Lake Tahoe, and that was where I I first had my real first ski experience and i think I that's just, where you fell in love with skiing 100 i fell like in you love like skiing you were skiing but you fell in love with it i fell in love with everything about it you know but i've always been a cold weather guy I've, I've always played hockey but to get on the mountain to feel what it was like to ski at like a you know to get actually on a real mountain like in lake tahoe at a, at heavenly not just the little local hills by us that sense of freedom and warren miller talks about you know freedom found his book that was something i'd never really felt before and it changed my entire perspective on 
how I look at life. And it sounds super corny and a little bit grandiose, but it really had, it really has changed mm-hmm. me in that way. And, you know, Mario and I were doing all these, these uh, ski share houses in Vermont. We were both in New Jersey at the time and we would do these four hour drives up and we would just talk about the, you know, the, we saw some ski news, all oh, this company's buying this mountain. And oh, did you hear about what Elon Musk is doing? And we would just kind of talk for hours in the car and just started recording it. So it was kind of, this wow. this whole podcast is like our love letter to the ski mm-hmm. industry. The things that we talked about, we were going to do our favorite thing yeah. and just share them with other people and see if they're... Right. The funny stories, the cool. bad stories, everything. And, you know, we've been doing it every week or every other week for, what, four years now? Five so, plus years, yeah. Five plus years. I lose track, but, yeah. you know, I didn't start skiing until I was 18. I mean, I played baseball and I was very athletic, but I went to the University of Buffalo and my friends were like, hey, 80 bucks you can get. Uh, a season pass and for another 80 bucks, you can get season rental. I'm like, they're like, you got to do it because there's nothing else to do. I'm like, all right, cool. So we go, I did all night skiing for the first two years I ever skied and I ski about 30 to 40 days a year. And they were all at night. The first time I skied in the day, I was like, Oh my God, I could see everything. (laughs) It was so amazing. I was like, wow, this is like cheating right now. (laughs) That's a unique experience. Jeez. I was, was cold. So when you guys when you guys cold. <laughs> starting starting out in your in in your love finding your love of skiing, were, were Warren Miller movies a part of that? Yes. I mean, was, so people, when I was in college, my roommates across the hall were Warren Miller. You know, they would watch Warren Miller films all the time. They would even go. I think at the time he was running one in Buffalo that they would go to. Um, and I didn't go to that, but uh, I remember mm-hmm. I would watch the movies with him. Be like, this is really cool. And the, the one thing I took away from that was not just the skiing, but oh my God, skiing could take me, you know, I could go skiing at all these other cool places, different countries, different, you know, people and cultures that I, I haven't been exposed to. You know, I hadn't left New York state for my whole life till then, you know? Um, and then Brian and I go to Tahoe the next year we go to Switzerland and they were like, you know, and it, from then on, it was like, hey, we could ski anywhere in the world now. Let's go. You know, yeah, you nailed it. Like just showing all those unique places like, you know, who would have known you could ski in Greece? You know, who knows you could have skied in Romania, like all these places that you kind of off, not the, the typical places you'd think of. And just seeing the story and the people who who were there, the people who grew up there, the locals who that's just part of their culture. And, yeah. you know, to, to be able to share that and to see what these people, you know, you know, we, we're pretty lucky, I think, as, as Americans that we have this ability to, to travel and just, uh, to go to these places, um, and to, to really take it all in and see what these people, you know, as it's part of their culture and how it's, how it's shaped who they are. And I think that's kind of a, an amazing thing. And to think that skiing is a part of it is, is really interesting. Yeah. You know, and you talk about skiing equaling freedom. Uh, for me, you know, I skied in college a lot after college uh, and I got married and started working. I didn't ski for like, I got to say, I didn't hit the slopes for about 10 years. Wow. Um, and then near the right after my marriage ended, <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. what am I going to do? Hey, let me get back to something I really love doing. I think it goes um, the other way. Usually the ski. Yeah going then the marriage ends but uh, <laughs> you flipped it around I flipped it around I kept it going for a while and then it, you know uh but you know then I I reconnected with skiing you know Brian on that trip and that was it was kind of 
it was influential enough to me to say, Hey, I'm going to get back into involved with some ski clubs and start planning my own trips, get buddies. And you start realizing the friends you hang out with. Well, if you don't ski or board, I don't really want to hang out with you. <laughs> I don't know if I have a lot to talk about with you. I've but. met some really cool, interesting people too, going on these yeah. trips and being in these ski clubs. And it's just, uh, it's just a fascinating sport because it's just such a bizarre thing to want to do. I want to slide on snow. You know, and and that was all fostered from Warren Miller movies and that, you know, the way he talked about things and that voice made you feel so comfortable. It was like talking to my dad, just, you know, tell me a story. Okay, great. And you sit down and I care if it's five minutes or a half hour, I'm not moving, you know? Yeah. Pretty great. That was amazing about Warren. You know, he, uh, his live narrations and how he went about telling those stories. He would have three jokes that he told at the beginning of every film. And depending on the reaction of the jokes, he would change the direction of the narration. Oh, wow. uh, and he would kind of gauge wow. the audience uh, engagement with those three jokes. And, uh, you know, so, you know, it, it would be amazing because, you know, those live narrations were never recorded. Uh, so, that that's pretty special and that's a special art a gift to be able really to do that special. and that's how you know he took that from john jay and you know, all of the john jay films that were, were that john jay produced none of them none of his narrations were ever recorded so uh, john jay only did live oh and wow and did live with a recorded narration for the release of the film but but warren kind of bridged that gap between john jay who just did live only live and uh, back in the 80s, we went on a, a mission before John Jay passed to record John telling his oh, wow. stories. Um, but Warren carried that on. And I, I think I'm the last person around that narrates live now. So I, awesome. I learned that from Warren. And I'll still do that occasionally to narrate a film live. So it cool. seems like a dying art, right? Like a dying art form where, you know, with technology and all this equipment you don't have to do it so it's also know, hard that you're still doing it is well it's, it's so pretty amazing so when you listen to warren and uh and and you hear it now i mean of course the films are still really good and i think johnny mosley is doing amazing but but what what happens with live is the gaps get filled in so the narrator gets more involved with the audience so instead of letting things go quiet he'll interject and that's what's missing when you look at the if you ever saw Warren live and then saw a VHS, what was missing was those injections of Warren in the live on stage um, mm. because it was off the cuff and it was passion and it was experience and it was timing. And it's so crucial. Yeah. So Dan, when did you actually first meet Warren Miller? What was that like? Well, we had skied in a few films before, you know, very few people ever really got to meet Warren. He didn't meet a lot of the skiers. The Wizard uh, of Oz, right? Yeah, like he was the man behind, you know, and, uh, I they were taking me in 89 down to Portillo in August and they flew me out to L.A. and uh, went to the office and I got to meet Warren and um, I got to sit in the Warren Miller studio where it was uh, like six, seven rows of chairs with every chair has a title of his film on it. And oh, cool. that's where I met Warren was in that studio. We watched, I listened to him practice his narration for the upcoming movie. Then he gave me the keys to an Audi and he said, kid, go enjoy the beach. <laughs> that's, awesome. that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a good story. That's very cool. Man, you got to put that back in the movie. Now. <laughs> it's in my book. Ah, uh, you got another movie coming out. No, <laughs> no, that's a great story. I'll tell you. 
So Jeff, one question for you. I know you did a great job and, and the things you got out of Warren was amazing, but was there any question that you wish you would have asked him or wish you would have gotten a, uh, an answer from? Mm, uh, that's a good one. It, uh, you know, some of what he, some of, I couldn't give you an exact specific probably. I know there was some complicated stuff and especially when you deal with the stuff in terms of selling the business and all those kind of things. Um, I, I couldn't quite get, uh, you know, a hundred percent clear picture on some of those and certainly a lot of time had passed. Um, but you know, for the position that, that I'm in at that point, we're really kind of trying to get the feeling. And I, and I think that, that we were able to do that. So it was hard to get the essence of like, the mechanics of things like how the business sold and who bought it and all this stuff, it got confusing, but what we were able to get was how he felt about it. And like, you could get the sense that it didn't sit well with him in retrospect and he wasn't happy about that. And that was kind of where we could get to, you know? And I felt like when you're dealing with a subject like, like that, it's not really about really the story of the feelings, like how, how he felt from, moment to moment logistics are less important but you know trying to understand these things is hard you know and you you're an outsider trying to get into this world so i i think that's probably the the hardest part was kind of understanding some of the business things um and you know like even even with the uh you know the betrayal of his 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 mother and his sister you know you you push and you push and but you just you you if you don't understand it maybe he gave me everything he had, you know what I mean? Maybe it's just one of those things in life that he doesn't understand either, you know, but I I don't get it. I don't get it. You know, I guess a good point for him is over three days, he had time to think about what he really wants to keep and, and keep to himself. Right. Mm -hmm. Versus still in the process of going through the interviews, like to be able to, you know, let go what he wanted. Right. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, he could, except, you know, we're kind of moving through the subjects and then we would kind of, we would huddle up afterwards and talk about like me and Patrick and Christine would kind of huddle up and talk about what we, what, what he said and what he did and what we missed. And, um, you know, along with, um, Nelson, our, our associate producer, we kind of say, what, what didn't we get? So we would hit some of that stuff again in a later session but yeah, you kind of went subject to subject. So you kind of didn't always get to go, go back to it. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, we, we definitely gave him the opportunity to say, well, you know, is there anything we missed here? Is there something you want to tell us? Um, but I felt like he, he, you know, he was never felt constrained, I hope, <laughs> you know, yeah. so I, I think it's a pretty interesting point, Jeff, that you bring up about the understanding because you know, when you talk to people of the time when he sold the film, the guys that bought it would tell you Warren doesn't understand. And what Warren would would say about them is they don't get it. Right. And and it was because they were doing two different things. One was we're going to grow sponsorship. We're going to make this bigger and better than ever before. And the other one was you guys missed three powder days. You didn't stay to shoot like you didn't shoot the cutaways and the, and the walking through town. Like that's what Warren was about. So he didn't get the other stuff because that's not how you make a movie in his mind. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was super interesting that, that, that disconnect for all of all parties. 
And what year yeah. was that when he was told? <clears throat> yeah, well, I think that 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 happened in the late '80s, early '90s yeah. when that happened. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I, I think you know that the that the whole concept of show business is is a great it's a great name for the film business and the television business because you need a really good show and there's a business component to it uh, behind the scenes. Warren was a show guy. No question. He was about the show. Mm -hmm. When he sold the company, it really became about growing the business. That's not, I'm not criticizing the next, you know, the guys who, who bought the company from him. There's a new set of owners now, and the company was just just sold recently again. It's not a criticism. It's just that Warren wanted to tell a great story and was probably less interested in the bottom line than people who ran the company down the road. And I think that's fine. It's just that at the end of the day, Warren wasn't motivated by making money. He was motivated by enjoying skiing and seeing the world and hanging out with friends and telling stories. And that's, I admire that about him. He somehow managed like a great ski, like the great ski bum, the original ski bum that he is. He managed to live this amazing life and do it his own way. You know, yeah. it's a real, it's totally inspiring whether you're, whether you're into skiing or not, you know, you could be a, um, you could be in the needle point, you know, yeah. that, your thing you know that yeah. could be the thing that keeps you awake at night and and it's a hobby and warren found this thing that he loved and built it. he basically built a whole 93 year world 93 year life around this passion it's what he did and i think there's something in just incredibly inspiring about about his persistence and and how he was able to do all that right. and i love too the callback you guys did in the movie how you know you kind of showed him you know the Yellowstone Club Lodge is named after Warren Miller, the guy who was in the Sun Valley parking lot shooting rabbits and skinning them in the bathroom. You know, it's like great. the way I mean, just by following your passion, you've you know, you've reached the pinnacle of the sport. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I agree too. Like you had mentioned the uh, I guess in the in the film, you talked about the document. Well, the series that he did on the skier. I forgot uh, his name. John called Keeley. John yeah. Right, the Keeley, and how it didn't take off. It didn't do really well uh, because of timing, and and that's where I guess his his lack of I guess business production, you know, focus was I guess kind of blindsided him because he was against football, you know, the afternoon football game, and it just didn't play well, right? So that kind of hurt a lot, right? He spent a lot on that, and it didn't really, uh, yeah, it didn't get the the bump that it, he was hoping, you know. Well, I mean, he, his, his business side, you know, I mean, like it was his, his real main thing was to just keep working, yeah. keep working hard. Like anytime he kind of ran into an obstacle, he literally put his head down and started grinding forward. That was his entire, it felt like that was his entire business strategy was just mm -hmm. grind forward. And and I don't, I mean, you know, Dan, you probably say better. I, I don't think the ski film business for him was, the most successful thing <laughs> financially. I think he was always struggling, honestly. Well, wow. the, the beautiful thing about Warren and the genius of Warren was that he, in the early days, traded real estate to be in the movie. So Aspen, Vail, almost every ski resort in the country gave Warren real estate. 
Warren owned real estate everywhere. That's he owns real smart, estate right? in Killington, Sugarbush, Vale, Aspen. You know, that's where that was the genius of Warren. He was a good businessman. He just mm-hmm. wasn't in the ski moving business as a business. So right. he, yeah. he was in the real estate business. His Amosa Beach uh, facility, the Vale House, all of that is how he accumulated his wealth to get to the Yellowstone Club. Um, wow. And so he was able to pursue his business through that genius because he made some great moves. Yeah. That's Actually, isn't it? That's amazing. Correct me if I'm wrong. Dan, when, when Warren sold his home at Yellowstone, did Jeff Bezos buy his home? Uh, that, well, that- I, I know that the person who bought it knocked it down. Ouch. Yeah, they bought the lot. Wow. Yeah. They took, they, they they took built, his built the house lot away and built a bigger house. Yeah. And I've heard rumors that that was Jeff Bezos, but yeah. I but I don't know. But there you go. Well, if that if whoever it was, yeah, had had a ton of money, and ended up buying their their dream house from Warren Miller. Wow, it's kind of it's kind of love yeah. that. And, and you know the, it the, you know imagine you could never live in Warren's house without it being Warren's house, right? So I think that was also one of the reasons why the guy nuked it was because he just couldn't handle <laughs> yeah. the pressure of living in Warren Miller's house. You know? <laughs> People driving by on his birthday. Yeah. Hey, let's drive uh, by the yeah. Warren Miller house. Yeah. <laughs> sad, sad, but true. Yeah. Wow. Well, his, his house in Orcas Island was the same house, though. That's right. Yeah. The same house. They rebuilt the house. They rebuilt oh, wow. the, the same design. So, yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. 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 Super cool. <laughs> so, that was one thing, too, that, you know, Mario brought up the uh, that series that he did. And then also, uh, you know, you guys, that was a, really fascinating as well, talking about the documentary Endless Summer, the surfing movie, and how yeah. he was trying to yeah. kind of create that same thing for skiing, but it, it debuted in the summer in New York City and just oh. a total flop. It's 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 heartbreaking to see that kind of stuff because that's the stuff, you know, we're used to just skiers waiting for our Warren Miller movie every year. We're psyched. Everyone's happy. You know, yeah. to kind of to hear about these other, these tales of failure, you know, it, it humanized him Yes. And it made you love him more. And I think the beauty of this movie is that we launched over the 4th of July. Um, <laughs> and we, we released the same day as Hamilton. <laughs> and wow. we went to the top 10 in iTunes and, and Amazon. So, you know, I think this movie is full circle for Warren. I think his theories and everything he was did maybe didn't work out then, but they worked out here which is the beauty of these two filmmakers and storytellers telling the story of the ultimate storyteller. Um, Mm -hmm. And I felt like that during the movie that, you know, even with my own relationship with WME and uh, the ups and downs of WME, it came together in this film uh, in a beautiful way. And I I think Jeff, Jeff and Patrick did that for all of us who loved Warren. And, and that's, that's what's so awesome about, you know, we released in the summer. Hey, it didn't work the first time, but it worked this time. Right. That's great. Great. A little poetic justice. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dan, I know we have to ask you about the Cornish incident. I'm sure you've told it a million times. Is I there any the, the live hangout that you guys did and you guys replayed that? And I was like, it was funny to hear your comments on it. But yeah. <laughs> so, well, so Brian, yeah. what was the question? <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, you know, is there anything that you can add that you haven't uh, told in the past? Or, I mean, how did you guys feel that exact moment when you look back and goes like, wow, where we just skied is now gone? Well, I think the one of the the magic part of John and I, the way we ski is that we are in the moment. And so we stay focused in the moment. And that's what saved John's life yeah. was being able to react in the moment, not freak out in the moment. Um, so when I'm on the piece that breaks and skiing off it, I think I'm hitting, you know, a wind drift and making a move as I would to regain my balance, which saved my life. And then John pushes, which is against all common sense. Uh, and that push is what saved his life. I mean, John and I always joke, the one thing we really needed in life was a common sense coach. And, uh, <laughs> they're, they're hard to find, you know, but, uh, but, you know, I think that moment really illustrates us in the moment and in our, our natural abilities to, to be present uh, and not distracted. But, but, you know, the real story of that day is, you know, people get excited around cameras and they get excited around powder. And even the patrol never mentioned to us that that piece of the mountain is missing and it's a cornice and they had to have known. So, you know, when you think about the accidents that happen every day in the mountains around the world, uh, it's so easy to get caught up in those moments. And for us, we were just lucky that that projected our career into a place we couldn't imagine and not ended it. Right. Do you think like people around you were thinking maybe, oh, you know, they know what they're doing. They got this plan kind of just kind of check out rather than say, hey, you know, there's a piece of the mountain missing. Well, I they mean, I want to embarrass them by, by telling them about this over here. They maybe they want doing. that. I don't know. Maybe they want to go over the edge. Yeah. You, get a parachute? Uh, also a classic, <laughs> you know, mistake, too. So, yeah, uh, no, it was just an amazing way it came together. Of course, Gary Nate, who's in the movie. Uh, is a beautiful cameraman and uh, of his own right, and really was one of Warren's early competitors. Also, uh, I think the the interview that how they showed Gary in the movie was awesome. Um, his passion is amazing, and uh, his camera work. You know, he shot a lot of the Egan segments and a lot of the John Egan segments. When you covered it, a lot, it's too, worth like, noting. It's worth noting that in the Cornice break, in the actual film, in the Warren Miller film, where it originally appears. Warren's voiceover is very folksy and jokey. He he he, he, he yeah. makes he makes light of it, and it, it, Dan, you can describe this better than I can. But the truth is, he tried to put a sort of a positive. Oh, this was just another day on the mountain. Yeah. I'm just curious, Dan, when you actually saw the footage in the film and the way he narrated that sequence. Was that surprising to you? Well, what what was amazing is what Warren says in the film is that it's the first time ever we they they blew up a shot and went slow motion with it. Uh, that they did that in post. That was the first time they had done that uh, to capture it. And and Warren sets that up. Um, but Warren was really proud, and he talked about this with Jeff in the interview. He's very proud that nobody ever got hurt or died uh, mm-hmm. in his film. So. You know, he wouldn't want to have drawn too much attention to it. But I think the contradiction between how he set it up with his voice and the reality of what people are seeing, you can't walk away from. The only person ever seen walk away from it was my mother. (laughs) (laughs) Got up and left the theater. Uh, But uh, but other than that, you know, I think that that impact was just so real 
and definitely the reason why it's the most viewed of all time is you you cannot not watch that and think holy cow how did they get away with it that's amazing yeah yeah it's it's one of the most um spectacular moments i've ever seen in in any movie you know it's 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 um it's just this weird collision of the raw beauty and power of nature and two people just out out having a day of skiing. These two things collide in a way. And, and of course, Gary Nate is, I guess, the third piece of that pyramid, which is Gary Nate photographing it, capturing it all and bringing the story back home. Well, it, you know, and Gary will tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Gary will tell you he didn't flinch. Right. Like. He didn't take his eye out of the camera. Like he was rock solid on that shot. Uh, A lot of guys might not have done that. Um, That that's a real professional. He was going to shoot us whether we made it or not. Yeah. 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 You see, it makes you think too. It's like, man, if I had one more piece of toast that morning at breakfast or, (laughs) you know, (laughs) had another little piece of gear in my pocket, like, you know, like the butterfly effect, right? Probably shouldn't think about it too much. Let me take well, that all back. You yeah. get to, you get to talk to John up at Sugarbush, huh? I talked to him. Yeah, we uh, we did a him, yeah. we did a couple runs together. We chatted <laughs> on the chairlift for a while. Yeah, and uh, he was talking about stealing your snowsuit at one point and giving it to the uh, <laughs> helicopter pilot. <laughs> he stole. We came back from Turkey, and uh, he wanted the guy to drop us off on top of the kitchen wall, the heli pilot. And I go, John, he, yesterday he said he wouldn't do it. He goes, yeah, I know, but I gave him your new leather coat from Turkey. <laughs> and, the, and if you watch the movie, he's wearing my awesome. coat. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. Wow. wow. So we're getting close to an hour here. You guys have uh, been fantastic with sharing your time and your stories. I want to ask you, do you guys think that there could be another Warren Miller now? I mean, I guess with technology, it's almost it's easy to be a filmmaker but it's right. to have that passion to have that that drive that storytelling ability i mean you know dan you, you're making great films now and uh, i'm almost you know, thinking that might be dan i don't know yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely i i you know i i think about that a lot that's a great question brian and just to be really succinct and maybe i sound if i sound like the father of three teenagers uh, guilty as charged because we have three <laughs> teenagers. The the thing when you ask, will there ever be a Warren Miller again? You have to kind of ask yourself, what is it? What does that mean? What what does being a Warren Miller mean? And and to me, what the, what he did, he was a great storyteller and he was a great athlete in his own right. What yeah. he did, though, more than anything else, that is valuable is he brought people together. That to me is really, that's his legacy, is that here's a guy in 1949 with a camera and a couple of rolls of film, and he built an, he built a whole empire, let's call it, whose main, the main goal of the Warren Miller Entertainment Company was to bring people into a room to celebrate this thing that he loved and that they all loved. And yes, VHS tapes became very popular. A lot of people watched them together on, on tape. But what what I don't like and what concerns me a little bit is that people don't come together quite the way they used to. Clearly with COVID, that's, that's 
something we have to deal with in the short term, hopefully. But this idea of putting down your phone or your device or your laptop, let's call it, and go hopping in a car like you two did and going on a road trip for four goddamn hours in the middle of the night, renting some little place near the near the foot of the mountain, watching a couple of movies together the night before, having a beer. That is the thing that Warren did as well as anybody. And and I I I really love seeing filmmakers today who see value in that. In, in, in renting a hall, Dan does it all the time, renting out a movie theater, renting out a, um, uh, some auditorium, let's say, popping a bunch of popcorn, dimming the lights and putting on a show. That to me is where the real gold is with the Warren Miller story. And I, I applaud people who continue to do that because otherwise we're just sort of sitting at home on our phones for the rest of our lives. That's kind of depressing to me, and that concerns me a little bit. So not to be a Debbie Downer, but anyone who's in pursuit of bringing people together to tell stories is is carrying on the legacy of Warren Miller, and, and I and I love to see that. Lots of people are doing it. I hope they continue to do so. Uh, Dan, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, Warren, all of us here on the call, inspired our inner Warren Miller what I call our inner Warren Miller. You know, everybody who woke up with the idea that today could be potentially, maybe, might be the perfect powder day uh, is a Warren Miller. And that was the spark that united all of us. And that inner Warren Miller shows up in a lot of different ways today. But when you break it down to the basics on how he made the story, he didn't use graphics. He didn't use effects. He thought the mount was beautiful enough. He thought that the juxtaposition of how framing was enough. You know, every time I ever used uh, any sort of effect, he called me out on it. Well, you didn't have the shot, huh? You know, <laughs> and so for us filmmakers, that that's a hard thing to live up to today when we know we can change it, color correct it, uh, add an effect, change yeah. the edit. You know, George Lucas it. Yeah. And, and Warren didn't do that. So so that's a real challenge to anybody who's trying to live what, the, you know, today, the the, the malarkey, in the words of the famous orator Joe, Joe Biden, malarkey, uh, you know, living living with their graphics, living with their effects and not understanding right. the art of the story. We we came to see, but we stayed for the story. That's right. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, I almost think that everybody uh, that got a GoPro and is out there trying to shoot their own video in some way was inspired by Warren Miller to tell their own story, even though none of it comes out nearly as, as good. <laughs> we all, we like, always you got 10 hours of this crap? <laughs> well, we always said every Warren Miller makes the best movie. Everybody else makes a bad Warren Miller movie. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. All right. So uh, any final thoughts and where can people check out this movie right now? Jeff, any thoughts? I mean, I, I, I mean, you kind of summed up a lot. I mean, to me, it was about the reverence and the pursuit of experience. I think, you know, he chased, uh, he chased 
you know, the ski mountain, but every, you look at the rest of his life. I mean, he was a surfer. He was, you know, did lots of stuff in the outdoors. He brought his family along sometimes. And I think there's something to reiterate what Patrick was saying. There's something about those lessons, you know, about go do it. And like that, you know, if you don't do it today, you're going to be another year older you know, <laughs> when you do. And, and, and the fact that he kind of figured out this special sauce to, how we should be living and then preached it. And he was a preacher. You know what I mean? Like he, that, that's what he did. He, he, his religion, he even talked to his, his daughter said, you know, my dad said, you know, I've never, you know, we never took you to church, but they were going up a chairlift at like a sunrise. So, but, but this is it for me. You know, I think that's really a lot of who he was. And, and there's some lessons in that for us, I think. So. And he preached it and lived it. I mean, that's, it's easy to preach but to actually yeah. live it as well. I mean, that's as noble as it can be. Yeah. Yeah. Inspiring. Well said, Jeff. Yeah. I think, you know, for, for all the pent up demand for all the skiers out there on a hot July day, you know, uh, you can get online and you can find this film all over the place, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's on, you, on prime. It's on news. Get on prime. Yeah. And, and, and I think you're, I you're doing yourself a favor and you're doing everybody around when you bring them to the movie, you know, bring people to this film uh, and see where it takes you. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Patrick, Dan, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. And thank, thank you so you much for making this film. I mean, it really yeah. was, you know, as a skier, I loved it as a human. I loved it even more because you, again, you got to see a, a wonderful, beautiful person uh, kind of go through his ups and downs and uh, just ultimately succeed, which, you know, I guess is what we're all trying to do in these mm -hmm. crazy times. I'm grateful for the fact that all three of you came together to make this. Cause uh, it seemed like you worked like amazingly well together. So I'd, I'd love to see if you guys are going to do another project or something. That'd be kind of, that'd kinda be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great because yeah. i know you guys done a lot of documentary a lot of ski film maybe ski documentary maybe something else i don't know but sounds yeah patrick how funny do the uh we, i watched i watched iou usa back in like 2009 or 10 how funny are those numbers right now yeah they're that not they're, <laughs> we're in a much different national debt situation <laughs> than we were in 2008 we're uh, laughing at one trillion dollars it's funny i we we, we were we, Jeff and I weren't going to announce this, but we'll go ahead and do it anyways. We're in talks, early talks of doing the Dan Egan story, which That's I right. think would be all right. Yeah, like I'm. <laughs> he doesn't of, even know it. <laughs> I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not joking. Um, it, it, Dan, Dan, and and obviously his brother John and and Scott Schmidt and a lot of the folks who are in the movie are just. Um, they they're in some ways they're Warren's children. They are very much alive and well and carrying on the tradition of Warren Miller. And it's been an absolute pleasure to get to know, to get to know Dan and to get to know the rest of the people in the film. And um, honestly, I, I dare someone to watch this movie and then just sit on the couch for the next 24 hours. You're gonna, <laughs> yeah. When you see this movie, you want to put on a comfortable pair of shoes and go find some adventure somewhere. You feel uh, bad that, about sleeping eight hours after watching. Absolutely. I got a ski boot right here. <laughs> right on after this. And that is what, that is what Warren wanted to do in 1950. And that is what he is still doing today. Now that he's, he's not even with us anymore. He's doing it 70 years later in 2020. And I kind of, I kind of love that. That, that was really the, the magic of making this movie when we did. 
Yeah. So you guys, your timing was perfect. And, you know, like, like I very well done alluded to before, I think maybe he just needed to tell this story before he went. So thank you guys for doing that and uh, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Mario. Thank Thanks, you guys. Thank Thanks, you guys. guys. Have a great night. Seeing you guys. Thank you. Too. We really hope Bye. you guys yeah. enjoyed the interview. If you have any questions or comments, please hit us up. Ski podcast at gmail.com. Under the ropes. That was such an awesome interview. We got one story. Mario, do you want to take this bad boy? Yeah, this is okay. I'll start off, but you're going to have to jump in and, and add your, cause there's a lot. There's a lot to say on this. Happy to do so. So this is from The Verge, uh, and this is uh, KFC is working with a Russian 3D bioprinting firm to try to make lab-produced chicken nuggets. Finally. So re- KFC is saying that this is the meat of the future, trying to create the first laboratory-produced chicken nuggets as part of its restaurant of the future co- uh, concept that the company just recently announced. It's going to work with a Russian company, 3D Bioprinting Solutions, to develop bioprinting technology that will print chicken meat using chicken cells and plant material. Why so, is it the fact that it's got to be in a Russian lab make it seem so shady and awful? It, it does, and it, it seems like Dr. Evil's putting it together or something. I don't know, but... We have it, new lab in Chernobyl. We make chicken nuggets for you. Because you know what's going to happen. Sometimes we're like, well, I'm in a rush. Just give me the chicken cells. <laughs> yeah, just inject it into my mouth. What'd you do? I just ate all the chicken cells. That's disgusting. And just, I, I don't know. I have a problem with this. It's, it's a little too creepy, too beyond nature for me. I want chicken nuggets from a real chicken. So they plan to provide the bioprinting firm with ingredients like breading and spices. And you know what that firm is going to do? Russia is going to copy the, the colonel's recipe and they're going to open up their own um, babushka chicken franchise all over the world. That's what's going to happen. PFC, Putin fried chicken. <laughs> Putin fried chicken. <laughs> PFCs everywhere. They might as well take over PF Chang too. PF Changs and, and PFCs. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so they're going to provide them with some stuff and they're going to achieve the KFC taste to replicate the taste and texture of genuine chicken. So it's worth noting that the bioprinting process KFC described uses animal material. So any nuggets it produced wouldn't be vegetarian. It doesn't offer a vegetarian option. Uh, KFC doesn't uh, at any of its restaurants. So even the goddamn mashed potatoes have meat with the shards worth of gravy. Uh, shards worth of gravy. I wonder if they're going to bioprint that gravy too. Mm. Maybe they could do the um, Szechuan sauce, the McDonald's Szechuan. <laughs> the Mulan, the Mulan Szechuan sauce. <laughs> Mulan sauce. <laughs> so, yeah, 3D printed meat, man. I don't know, man. That just sounds creepy. Well, think about if, imagine you didn't have to have factory farming. You didn't have to have all these like slaughterhouses. And- oh, it would be great for everybody. The environment. It could, ju- it could just imagine it just tasted the same. Like you got, yeah. imagine you could 3D print a ribeye steak. That'd be kind of cool, actually. It would be really cool. I mean, yeah. you got to get past that thought that you have in your head that it's creepy. You know, I we, do at least. You know how we look at, you know, something like 1700s. Like we look at the technology then. 
in the year 2300, they're going to be looking back and be like, they would raise a bunch of animals and just kill them to eat them. What a bunch of savages. They, yeah, wouldn't, right. even, they wouldn't say that. They would just think that and they would just teleport that message to their their friend because that's where we're going to be at that time. Like, we're, we're not going to have to have these these massive farms at that point. Maybe. I, that's. It seems to me like that's where we're going. Yeah, I was watching Westworld, the most recent season. There's a few scenes in there where one of the people, I'm not going to try to spoil anything for anybody. They work at this like meat plant and you see signs throughout the series, the season of this meat. And it's like a, it's, it's a real meat, but it's grown from cells. So they don't grow a whole cow. They just grow like cells from a cow and then they harvest that and they cut it up into steaks. Yeah, you grow the parts you need. I mean, why would you grow the rest of it? He's just growing parts. And it's then you're not doing the heart, you're not doing that brain. And that seems to be the thing right. that a lot of people have problems with is if you have, you know, it's like this is a living thing and you're killing yeah. it. Then it's not alive. Then it's just a product. It's just, it's weird and creepy too. That gets into that slippery slope of like, yeah, what are you really eating? You're eating meat cells. Meat it's cells. Not eating a cow, you know. I don't know. I think it goes against our primal caveman hunter gatherer mentality. I don't know. I guess you're gathering at that point. You're not hunting anymore. You're just gathering. You're printing and gathering. <laughs> printing and gathering. <laughs> get, go get me that steak off the printer. <laughs> All right. Yeah. They, well, they've they've already started to print human organs for transplantation last year. Damn. It's crazy. So, so how about this? You you have a printer that prints meat with messages on it. So like you print out 10 pages, you got like 10 little, little steaks, like steakums. And think about that. You could have the message and then eat it. Like meat mind control. They could put like all kinds of messaging in there. Oh, that's right. It'd be like the Joe Camel that put penises on everything. (laughs) (laughs) Why are they just 3d printing dicks? Like cow dicks. That's what hackers are going to do. That's what the hackers are going to do. Instead of like, you wanted to print out steaks and they just print out dicks. You're like, ah, that's dicks. Chicken dicks. Chicken dicks. It's just chicken dicks. These nuggets taste a little funny. That's what hacking is going to be in the future. That's goddamn funny. (laughs) Hack your 3D printer, print out just anything they want. Yeah, but they're saying that the final testing is happening in Moscow this fall. But how do you do that? I'm just curious about the technology. So they have cells. So what does that mean? They're in like a tube or they're in like a like an ink cartridge. So you have an ink cartridge of like, here's like cells. <laughs> cells. <laughs> That's just weird. And like, how do you how do you get the chicken cells? So here's the mess apart. They're like, oh, this is great. You're saving animals. And like, well, how do you get the chicken cells? Well, you got to kill twenty thousand chickens. It's mm, a good right? point. Where do the chicken cells come from? You grow them in a lab. That's fine. But what came first, the chicken cell or the chicken? Yep. Well, there is no word yet on when or if the printed nuggets might be available for KFC customers to sample. Now, does that mean in China they're going to be printing bat to eat? Oh. Hey, I'm just saying this is what we heard COVID was started from. Don't so. knock it till you tried it, right? That's that's something. Yeah, that's something. That's something. Right. That sure is. All right. Well, that wraps up the old podcast for the week. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the interview. We had an awesome time doing it. 
you want more information, check us out, skibonepodcast.com on all the socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Untapped. We're also on YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes. Check us out. Send us a message, skibonepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week. And I stay gluten. See ya.